Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Tonight I wanted to introduce this topic. It's really, it is really a Dharma talk or set of talks on discernment, but I want to talk about discernment over the next few weeks in, in some new ways much more practical ways. So tonight I'm just going to introduce the topic and I'm going to read some instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta and really highlight some of the instructions that tend to be overlooked or left out and bring a whole set of teachings into a coherent practice for us. I'll just give us an overview for context, which will be just talking a little bit about the Four Noble Truths and fabrication stuff that we've talked about before in depth in separate podcasts, but I want to pull it all together to create a framework here. So one of the things I think I'll start with is just to say that the Dharma, the Dharma in its fullest expression, I guess you could say, is a way of living. Goenkaji used to say that the Dharma was a way of life and that the art of living was also the art of dying. And that the art of living well was the art of dying well. And that the Dharma was not just some tool that we put into our lives. The Dharma is the cobbled path upon which life moves. That our aspirations to be free from suffering and our aspiration to be mindful, generous, kind, compassionate, our aspiration to offer goodwill, these are all foundational principles for living rather than extracurricular activities. So the Dharma in its fullness is designed to fuel and inspire all of our movement through life, right? It's a path that we're on, but we take, we take life along for the ride rather than living our life and putting Dharma in the backpack, right? It goes in reverse. And the fuller we experience the Dharma, the fuller we experience living. And when mindfulness shifts, when we make that shift from the path being something we do in our life and we shift it to the source of our lived experience, then life becomes a completely different experience altogether. That shift between where the Dharma exists in our days really changes our lived experience. And that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to change the lived experience. The more moments that we meet in our life with mindfulness, the deeper the sense of living becomes, right? The fuller the sense of life unfolds to us. And as I always say, and this is not something new, but when I always say that since the only place that life occurs is in the present moment, the more mindful we are, that means the more direct contact with life that we actually have. So when we think about that, we want Dharma to be the source so that every moment in life is lived fuller with greater depth of expression, right? Greater open-heartedness, greater wisdom. And so 
this commitment we have to being on the path is really a commitment to be as mindful as possible continuously, moment to moment throughout our lives. That really is part of the goal of practice, is continuous mindfulness. Because if mindfulness connects us to the actual energy of living, then the more mindful we are, the more alive we are. So this idea of, I'm going to go on a tangent just for a second, this idea of samadhi, right, which is concentration, but also continuous mindfulness, is an enlightenment factor. Because to be enlightened is to be awake and aware all the time, which means we're living mindfully, like fully living mindfully, moment to moment. So with that in our minds and that in our hearts, we start to look at the Dharma as something that we want to infuse into everything we do moment to moment. In this way, I think from a Buddhist perspective, that we can look upon life as a creative act. And that our lived experience, that which we call life, our lived experience is an act of self-creation. That we walk this path in such a way that we create ourselves into different beings. And even though so much of the path is about letting go, and so much of the path is about equanimity and just being present with things, that presence changes who we are, right? Being mindful of breath changes how we experience the breathing. Being mindful of the body changes the way the body comes in contact with the mind and the heart. So everything we do on the path, no matter how passive, no matter how gentle, no matter how equanimous, changes our relationship with ourselves and changes the relationship of ourselves to the world. So Vipassana is an act of self-creation because it puts us back in touch with life itself, and it puts us back in touch with the fact that our lived experience is something that's participatory, right? Life doesn't just happen to us. The outside circumstances arise, and we choose how we show up, how we react, and that moment is what we call living, that touch point between the heart and the body and the mind and awareness and the outside world. That's the actual lived experience. And Vipassana is training the heart and mind to really see that life is an act of creation and that Vipassana really is a sort of, uh, sort of like using the heart and mind as a canvas and we're painting on it, right? And we're painting images of joy and we're painting images of mindfulness and we're, our creation is consciousness itself. It's the body itself. It's the heart and mind itself. And so from a, Buddhist perspective, life is a participatory act. And the suffering comes when we fall into the delusion that it's not that, right? That suffering arises when we fall into the delusion of not realizing that suffering is a participatory act. Happiness is a participatory act. And when we can really see the truth of suffering, we begin to see, oh, I can change this. I can unfabricate the dukkha. I can fabricate compassion. And all of this is a real active process. Granted, it's gentle and there's an ease to it. And there has to be, otherwise there's too much clinging and it doesn't work. But ultimately, it's very active that we are transforming ourselves creatively with each step. We can choose open-heartedness. We can choose authenticity. We can choose compassion and kindness. 
even though in the heat of suffering, it doesn't feel like those are choices. As mindfulness deepens, we begin to see they are in fact choices. And mindfulness allows us to enter into the present moment so we can successfully choose those benevolent qualities as the source of our life. When we're suffering and our hearts contracted, we almost have no choice but to choose fear and insecurity and greed and defensiveness and anger and hatred. When we're suffering and we're lost in the delusion of experience, we choose these things because we, we don't know what else to do. We're just acting out of habit. We're acting out of a lack of skillful view, a lack of skillful uh, action. But the Dharma allows us to see fully into the present moment deeply enough to see that, wow, my heart-mind qualities are a choice. I can learn to choose differently. I can learn to live differently and love differently and show up differently. And that's really what Vipassana is. Vipassana is using mindfulness to see how much of a choice we really have on how we feel moment to moment, how we think, how we aspire. And that's really the practice. And sometimes the practice is so challenging <laughs> that we forget sometimes that that's what we're doing because we're trying to be with the breath and the mind wanders and then the hindrances arise and we're trying to deal with that. And, you know, election season, I mean, so much outside and climate change and social justice. And there's just so much heaviness to the human experience that we forget about the simplicity of the Dharma in its revelation that moment to moment we have a choice on how we be, right? Who we are. And that's really what Vipassana is all about. And I wanted to dive into that reality uh, by reading some of the suttas and talking about how this insight that the Buddha has that every moment of mindfulness is an opportunity to choose to show up in a particular way. And what really happens, which is why I called this uh, what happens after mindfulness, once mindfulness is established, right, once we have a sense of being able to, with a gentle intention, enter into presence, make contact with present moment experience, then we can begin to till the soil of discernment, of really looking closely at what's happening in the moment and watching our participation right? Mindfulness reveals that we have been unconsciously participating moment to moment in our lived experience, creating our lived experience. So mindfulness allows for discernment. Now remember, discernment is an enlightenment factor. Discernment also means investigation, or sometimes it's translated as curiosity. I like discernment, but there's other translations. So once mindfulness is established, discernment or investigation is really our ability to notice two major things. What is present and what is not present. And I really want to emphasize the what is not present. And I'll talk about this later on this evening. But the two major things that we want to shift attention to as soon as we've established some mindfulness is what is present and what is not present. And discernment asks of these things, of these heart-mind qualities, of these thoughts, of these moods or feelings, whatever is present in awareness, of these things that are present and of these things that are absent, that's the tricky one, of these things that are absent, what is the consequences of that? 
Let's say anger is not present. Can I notice the consequences of the absence of the anger? Can I notice when my heart is open, when there's an absence of the contraction, can I notice that? Can I notice that consequence? And I'll explain this more fully as we go, but discernment is really the ability to open mindfulness up fully to presence and then look to see what is there, but equally important, what is not there. And then notice what are the consequences of the ingredients of the soup, right? What are the consequences of having something and not having something? And so once we're able to start to see, okay, this is what's so, and this is what is not so, then we can say, okay, well, what do I need to add, right? What is absence of this? What is absent in this moment that I could cultivate that would change the experience? And what is present that I should probably let go of that could equally change the circumstance of the present moment? So what I'm going to, so that's just the basic, I just wanted to throw some of that out there to ground us in the Dharma fully. What I'm going to do now is I wanted to read some quotes from the Satipatthana, which are the actual instructions from, for what I basically just said as a summary. And then I'm going to make some commentary on it. So I'm going to just read, I'm going to read three, let's see, do I have three quotes? One, two, four. Okay. They're short, but I'm going to read four quotes. So these are coming from the instructions for Vipassana. And for the most part, you will have heard them before in different contexts. They're not new. <clears throat> but let me read them. So this first one comes in the section where the Buddha talks about contemplating the mind. Contemplating the mind. And I'll just read this one here. Uh, this is about contemplating the mind. And this is what the Buddha says about how we do such a thing. The Buddha says, And how, monks, does the meditator, in regard to the mind, abide contemplating the mind? Here the meditator knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. The meditator knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. The meditator knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. They know a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. The meditator knows a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow. They know a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. A meditator knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. Lastly, the meditator knows a liberated mind to be liberated, and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. The reason I wanted to start with that Vipassana instruction is just to highlight the fact that it's not as much about the qualities, because there's a ton there, right? It's not as much about the qualities the instruction is to notice when something is present and equally when something is absent. And that's the big one we forget, that it's not just about being awake and aware to what is, it is also being awake and aware to what is not. Those are equal instructions in the Satipatthana. I'll explain those uh, that significance a little bit later, but so that's the first one. What is so and what is equally what is not so? The second quote is, 
how to contemplate the body. So how to contemplate the body. Slightly different instruction. In this way, in regard to the body, the meditator abides contemplating the body internally, or they abide contemplating the body externally, or they abide contemplating the body both internally and externally, or they abide contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or they abide contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or they abide contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. The reason I ordered these quotes in such a way is to remind us that, in a sense, first and foremost, we're asked to notice the presence of and the absence of, and the impact that the presence or absence of particular qualities or thoughts impact our moment-to-moment -moment experience. And then the Buddha encourages further discernment, not just noticing what is so and what is not, but noticing how something arises into being, becoming what is so, and how something passes away out of being, becoming absent. So when, some, when we notice something is there, we might not have noticed that it arose into being, but we notice it, oh, I'm angry. We might not have noticed it arising. And then we might spend the day <laughs> pissed off about something. And then a couple hours later, we just notice, oh, it's gone. We might not catch the passing away of a particular emotion or the arising of it, which why it's an extra instruction. We might just notice that it's there. We might notice that it's not there. But also the Buddha, Buddha is inviting us. We want to also learn to notice it and catch it as it's arising and catch it as it's passing away. So those are three different instructions. Here's another instruction. This is... How to be mindful of the hindrances. Okay. And how, monks, does the meditator, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas? Here, in regard to dhammas, the meditator abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances. And how does a meditator, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the five hindrances? If sensual desire is present in them, they know there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in them, they know there is no sensual desire in me. And they know how unarisen sensual desire can in fact arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the sensual desire can be prevented. And I want to re read that last part because this is hugely important. The meditator knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. So now we're getting even more specific. Not only are we being asked to notice when something is present and not present, we're being asked to catch something as it's arising, notice how something passes away, and now we're being asked to do something even more active, right? We're actually being asked to figure out how to remove a state of consciousness or a quality once it's arisen and to learn how to prevent it from arising again. 
That's a pretty bold, <laughs> it's a pretty bold ask, first of all, but it's really important. That instruction, most of the time, is overlooked and we hardly ever learn how to do it. But it's in the, the Satipatthana for some specific reasons, which I'll go into. But it's important to know on that level that we are being asked to prevent things from arising. We're not just being asked to accept. And we're being asked to be able to, as something arise, know why it has arisen. Why is this anger arising? Meaning, what's the cause? Okay, one last quote, and then I'll give some commentary. The last quote is the opposite of the hindrances. This is the enlightenment factors. So this is sort of the opposite instructions for the enlightenment factors. And the Buddha says this. He's using the mindfulness factor in this, in this case. He goes through all seven, but he's using the mindfulness one here. Here, if the mindfulness awakening factor is present in them, they know there is the mindfulness awakening and factor in me. If the mindfulness awakening factor is not present in them, they know there is no mindfulness awakening factor in me. They know how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen mindfulness factor can be perfected and developed. So this is similar to the instructions for the hindrances, but in the hindrances we're asked to prevent something from arising where with the enlightenment factors, we're asked to do something quite different. We're asked to notice what causes it to arise. And then when it arises, we want to figure out how do we develop it to completion. So the reason I wanted to read those is just kind of proof in the pudding, right? I wanted to just really show that in Vipassana, we are asked to engage the world in multiple ways. Sometimes the instructions are just to be awake and aware to what is so. Other times, we, what's really skillful is to be awake and aware to what is not present. That's a harder one, but we really are asked to do that. And then sometimes we're asked to be able to gain the skill of not just noticing that a hindrance is there, which is mostly what we're taught, but also to learn how to prevent it from coming up ever again. And once it's arisen, to know how to get it to go away. And these instructions are really, really challenging for myself and are really challenging for meditators because most of the time we think that the only action we're supposed to do is just be equanimous to what is so. And you can see in the instructions what we're actually doing after we're mindful is pretty active. There's a lot of stuff going on with discernment when we're looking to see what is arising, what is a passing, why is it arising and passing. And the reason I brought these up after the introduction that I offered earlier was for us to remember that when something is arising or passing, right, or something is not present, no matter what the circumstance, we're contributing to that happening. If we're in a moment where we're not feeling angry, that is in part something we're doing. There's a doing in that. And so part of the insight of the Dharma is learning to figure out how am I fabricating an experience where my heart is open and there's no anger? We don't just enjoy it. We also ask, how did I get here? How did I get to having a really good day today? Do you ever, <laughs> you'll notice that when you're having a bad day, you're pretty acutely aware of it, right? If something's going wrong, uh, you might spend the day ruminating on how it should be 
or actively being disappointed in why it didn't go the way you planned. Those things are pretty easy to ruminate on. But you ever notice that you can have a pretty decent day where there isn't a lot of stress and you don't even notice it. You just kind of bob along and you're kind of light on your feet and you kind of just do your activities. But you don't think to yourself, wow, this is a great day. How am I contributing to this being a great day? <laughs> no one does that. <laughs> Who does it? It's just a great day. You don't like, you don't think to yourself, wow, I'm really happy and spacious and life is just feeling so wonderful. You know, and what kind of view am I holding in this moment that's allowing that to be the case? That is not how an untrained mind engages reality. So this is why I'm bringing this up, because we're going to have to talk eventually about pleasure and how when pleasure arises, we hardly ever ask ourselves, what am I doing to create this and how can I sustain it and how can I ensure that it happens more frequently? Instead, we just enjoy the heck out of it, right? We don't ask those other questions of saying, wow, I'm feeling really good right now. What is absent? What is truly absent in my heart and mind right now that would prevent this from being the case? So it's counterintuitive, which is why I wanted to bring it up in this way. So I'm going to change focus just temporarily and remind us when we, when we hear these instructions from the Buddha, Right. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say this. Any instructions that we read in the suttas, any instructions of the Dharma, must always be processed and understood within the context of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is where the path begins, and all instructions are an expression of those Four Noble Truths. And so when you listen to the readings that I just gave about preventing something from happening and watching what is present and not present, we want to take a moment to listen to those instructions within the context of the Four Noble Truths. And so let's just remember what the Four Noble Truths are designed to tell us. So the Four Noble Truths remind us that our actions have consequences. Our actions have consequences that we participate in the present moment. We also remind ourselves with the Four Noble Truths that our participation moment to moment is what causes things to arise and to pass away in consciousness. Outside circumstances, not so much, but what arises and passes away in our thoughts, feelings, and attitudes, and views, and aspiration, all of that is intentional even when we're not aware of it. It's habituated, but it's intentional. And the last thing that we have to remember with the Four Noble Truths is just that the fourth, let's see, (laughs) how many Noble Truths are there? Three. The third Noble Truth, the third Noble Truth (laughs) is that there is a cure for suffering, right? And that cure is, of course, coming back around to what I had said earlier, is fabricating a different experience, choosing to participate differently. So when we look at these instructions to pay attention to what's arising, to what's paying it to pay attention, what's passing away, to pay attention to what's absence, to learn to prevent. All of that is a description of the third noble truth, learning to change our relationship with the world in such a way as to let go of that which causes harm and to cultivate that which leads us to freedom from harm and encourages well-being. So 
that's the connection. And I know it was long-winded, but that's the connection. The connection is that when we begin to cultivate mindfulness and mindfulness becomes more discerning, then we can really dive into our practice and start looking for things. We can start looking for what is so. And so here's the list. I'm going to give you this list one last time because I wanted to ground us in this because over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going through and talking about all the different tools and how we do these different discernments. So here's the, the way the Buddha lays it out. We want to have a general experience of the presence of what is so. And we also want to have the general experience of the absence of things. We want to notice the coming into existence of reality and the going out of existence. We want to take note of the causes of experiences as they arise, meaning how am I participating in this moment, and the causes of the experience of the passing away. We want to look closely at how we can remove experiences and prevent them. And lastly, we want to look at our experience and ask ourselves, how can I sustain or increase or perfect the good qualities of my heart? That's the foundational discernment of Vipassana, those activities. And I just, I think it's good. I mean, I know as a meditator, I can get in a rut with not looking for things because after doing this for so long, you're like, okay, I can be aware of breath and you can kind of just chill with the breath, which is fine. You can just chill with the breath. But on occasion, we need to remind ourselves to look closer for something because if we don't look closer, we can't see anything new. <laughs> when I was making this outline, <laughs> I was thinking of this ridiculous experience I had in the last few days and it I don't know, maybe it's a leap of a metaphor, but I'm going to just share it with you anyway, because it helped me to understand discernment. So I was in my bathroom in the morning and I grabbed a little pill I was going to take. It was a vitamin D pill. And they're these tiny little things. They're little tiny gel caps and they're kind of gold. At least the one I had was like kind of goldish. And my floor is also like a brown gold color. So I ended up dropping the pill and I heard it hit the ground I was like, ah, oh, damn. So I didn't want to leave it on the floor. I mean, it's not a big deal, but I let it hit the floor. So I stopped and I looked down at the floor and I couldn't find it. I look, I was like looking all over and it was like, I, could, I knew it was there somewhere. I heard it hit and I heard it roll into something, but I couldn't discern it. I couldn't see it. And so I stood there for a second and I relaxed my eyes and I just kind of tried to scan, like, you know, it's a very small bathroom. So I scanned one part of the floor and I turned around and I scanned the other part of the floor and I couldn't see it, right? That's discernment. Now, how is that discernment? It's discernment because if I didn't look, I wouldn't have seen it. And sometimes, even when we're intentionally trying to discern qualities, they merge with the background and we can't see the texture. We can't see the distinction right? They're fused with the background. So, so this is, so I left the bathroom, not discerning the pill, not being able to grab it. And then in the evening, when I came back to brush my teeth, I ended up kicking it somehow. And I felt it hit my foot and I heard it roll across the floor and hit the wall again. And I was like, great, now I can grab it. And then again, I looked down and I couldn't find, I couldn't find it. But the key is that 
discernment is a repetitive process, right? Eventually, I'm going to find that little pill because, but I'm not going to find it if I don't open my eyes and bring awareness to the reality to try and see what, where and what is arising and passing away. So the challenge that most meditators have with discernment is that mindfulness isn't clear enough to see details. And when we don't see the details, we kind of just give up. We're like, eh, I don't know. Karma, consequences, conditions, I, I can't see it, so I'm just going to bail. And we don't continue to look for the things we're supposed to be discerning. The most challenging part about these questions that the Buddha asks us to look for is that it takes re repetition. And most of the time in the beginning of practice, you're going to keep looking for causality and you're not going to see anything. You're, you just won't see it and it'll be really boring and it will seem fruitless and kind of stupid, which of course it will feel like that. But if you keep looking, eventually the background, which seems to have no contrast, begins to show contrast and we begin to see that participation. We begin to really see, oh my gosh, I'm feeling kind of depressed today. Oh my gosh, I'm noticing that I'm holding a particular view in mind. I'm not very optimistic. I'm having this absence of optimism. This fatalism has arisen in consciousness and it's creating this mood and you'll catch it. And the first time you can catch that discernment will give you a lot of faith that asking these skillful questions and looking for things as they arise and as they pass will be really fruitful in the long run. It's just a long haul to do it because mindfulness, concentration and discernment are like besties, right? They're best friends. We can establish some mindfulness, but until it's really continuous, discernment is not going to come online. But as mindfulness becomes more concentrated, discernment starts to be more fruitful. And also, as discernment starts to be more fruitful, mindfulness will become more stable and it will feed into concentration and your concentration will be more acute and more clear. So it's one of those things you really have to practice. This part of the path is really kind of boring and it can feel kind of fruitless for a while until you can get the hang of it. I can give you an example in my own life with anxiety. Anxiety is a big emotion I work with all the time. One of the things that I can really clearly discern now that I couldn't discern previously was how much my mind will be thinking in a particular way long before the emotion of worry actually arises. And I never saw this early on in my practice. It was just, I'm anxious. Anxiety is here. And I always thought it was kind of, again, I'll use the word stupid. At the time, it was kind of like, I'm just an anxious person. I would kind of get like mad at the Dharma and say, anxiety doesn't arise. I'm just anxious all the time. I just worry about stuff. I'm a worrying person. I'm always worrying. But now with discernment really being online, I can watch, I could be in my day and feeling good and I can watch the moment that my mind turns south. I can feel that first thought that's like, wow, life is really good. But what if this bad thing happened? <laughs> and I, that switch turns on and it's like, ooh, there it is. And then the emotion of worry and anxiety arises. So... That discernment is so helpful because then we can really look at the dukkha. We can start to see, oh, wow, yeah, I've got these habits of looking at the world in a particular way. And 
Nowadays, what I actually practice doing is once I'm anxious, once I feel the anxiety, so I might notice it suddenly like, oh yeah, I'm having an anxious day. I'll actually put myself in a pseudo mindful state. I'll like get into the body, feel the emotion, and I'll kind of look at my day and say, wow, how long has this been? Have I been anxious for like all morning? Was I anxious when I woke up? When was that shift? When did this come online? And nowadays, just by inviting my mind into that space, I can go back and I can start discerning, oh, that's right. I got that email or I had that phone call or I talked to that person that I don't like <laughs> or I had to do that thing I wasn't interested in. And there was a shift and my mind went into the negative brain bias mode. It went into the pessimism. It went into the, it could have been that I woke up, I meditated, and then I made the mistake of checking the news. That is like a big one where I can wake up feeling optimistic and then I read the news and there's four headlines that usually start by saying, what if this catastrophe happens? What if this person gets elected into office? What if the climate thing raises four points and we all die tomorrow? Like, what if the fires get worse? What if COVID, <laughs> there's always the one now that says, what if this next COVID variant is going to kill you? Like, there's always five things that <laughs> help me to get really anxious and fearful. And I'm already a ridiculously anxious person to begin with. So discernment for me has become so big in my practice. In the first, gosh, 15 years of practice, I didn't even really understand what discernment was. It was just all about the mindfulness. But now in my practice, I really have come to appreciate inviting my mind to discern, wow, I'm in this particular mood. When did this show up? You know, And learning to do it with happiness, and we'll go into this next week, but learning to discern what kinds of things really invoke a happy mood for you, because it's different for everybody, right? Different things light up our hearts and spark our minds. And the Buddha was really, you know, skillful and wise to invite us not to take happiness for granted, right? To realize that happiness can be matured, right? We can learn, <laughs> we can learn to keep happiness on the guest list and not, and remember to re-invite it every day, every moment and invoke it back into presence because Happiness is like one of those guests that shows up and when it shows up, we're all stoked, but we don't have its phone number or its email address. So we don't know how to get in touch with it to like invite it back. And so it shows up and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you came. Like you came to my birthday party. This is so cool. And then it leaves before the end of the party and you're like, oh man, how do I get a hold of that person? Like, cause I want to like hang out and have a relationship with them, but then it fades again and we're like, oh, okay. I guess I'll wait for happiness to arise again, in some other moment. But as discernment begins to come online more clearly, we really start to see that oftentimes our moods are a flip of a switch and we do have choice in how we fabricate that moment by not reaching for the switch, right? By not reaching for it. So over the next couple weeks, I'm gonna go into the different strategies on how to catch the mind in the act and what the Buddha says about how we do these things. How do we cultivate something and then learn to prevent it from happening again? What kind of tools are we supposed to actually be using? And I'll throw in, uh, if I'm lucky, I'll throw in some contemporary tools as well that some neuroscience research has hit on uh, when they do mindfulness studies with meditators to talk about what the Buddha intuited 3,000 years ago 
but that we're starting to really see like in the therapy space about how consciousness arises and holds itself in a space and then fades away, but how a mindful person can take a mood and really stoke the fires of it. So not only will it last longer, but it will continue to come back as a guest to the party more and more frequently. So I'm excited to talk about that because I feel like in my practice, this was something I probably only learned maybe five years ago, maybe, maybe more. But it's just one of those things that as I've got into this part of the path, it's really helped me out with my mood a lot. So I'm excited about sharing this part of the path with you because it's some really good stuff. Thank you, my friends, for your kind attention. The Dharma is so awesome. And I will let you know as soon as I find my vitamin D pill. <laughs> I'll tell you when I'm going to actually find it. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. I'm going to keep looking just because I want to see if I can actually see it. <laughs> but probably it's not going to happen until I sweep the floor. And I'm going to sweep and it's going to go into the dustpan. I'm like, ah, the, the, the brooming of the is going to be the real illuminated discernment. It's like, I gotcha. I can see you now. <laughs> so anyway, my friends, I love being here. Thank you so much for inspiring me to dive into this material and show up for you in this way. This is some good stuff, and I think the tools we'll have in the next few weeks will be really helpful for you. For those of you who need to take off, thank you again. Be well. Uh, for those who can stay, we'll do a few minutes of meta as we tune out. So thanks, folks, who have to be on their way. I'll grab my bell, and we'll fall into presence for a few more minutes. All right. Let us welcome mindfulness back into the room by directing our attention back to this breathing body. We've been breathing throughout the Dharma talk, but let's return to noticing it. And notice how it feels to be breathing. Can we find a sense of ease and comfort in that simple living act of breath? Let's bring mindfulness back to the body, again noticing its shape and form. We've been sitting for another 40 minutes, but let's notice it again. Changing our relationship with this moment by intentionally being awake and aware to what is so. And as we hold this body gently with a sense of grace and ease, as we attune to the in and out breath, 
Let us thank ourselves for the practice of this evening. We might have a sense of gratitude for the privilege of being able to show up here tonight, having the safety and the free time We might offer some gratitude for all of our Dharma friends this evening who graced us with the generosity of their presence to create Sangha, a place for us to practice. We are so lucky to have this gift of the Dharma. May we use it well. In one way, we use the Dharma well is by never forgetting our true purpose, that our highest aspiration beyond our own freedom is that all beings can share in the fruits of our practice. And that our open-heartedness, our generosity, and the healing of our hearts can be in the service of healing of others. And in that spirit, let's wish well for all beings by answering this question. In this moment, if I could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would it be? Offer that goodwill to all beings with each breath. Thanks, my friends, for hanging out. Appreciate your company in this context specifically. Thank you so much for helping us create Sangha. Much love to you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.